it's an honor to be invited uh, to the Center for Ethics, um, though I confess that it makes me feel like, you all hear me? It makes me feel uh, a bit like an imposter. Um, I'm in no wise an ethicist or a moral philosopher. I teach literature, and I've always been somewhat suspicious of efforts by moral philosophers to enlist literature in their cause. It's true, however, that as Marcus said, I've for the past several years been teaching a seminar under the rubric, The Ethics of Reading. Um, the impetus for that seminar came from reading the so-called torture memos uh, when they began to be made public in 2004 in the States. You will recall that these were written in the Office of Legal Counsel of the U.S. Department of Justice, considered the inner sanctum of authoritative legal advice to the executive branch in order to justify so-called enhanced interrogation techniques on so-called high-value detainees, torture wrapped in euphemism. I won't go into a detailed reading of the torture memos, um, I've done so elsewhere, but simply give you a flavor of their analysis. In what may be the most notorious, the so-called Bybee Memo of August 1, 2002, John Yu, um, uh, a law professor and its, its principal author, uses what I see as twisted, perverse, and unethical readings to interpret the Convention Against Torture and Inhuman Treatment as incorporated in the U.S. Criminal Code to justify torture, arguing in part, to give you just one example, that the use of severe in medical insurance statutes proves that only pain on the threshold of the destruction of bodily functions, something close to death, could possibly qualify as torture. So here's a, just a quick example of that kind of reasoning. As for the limits to mental pain and suffering, which is another clause in the convention, Here's a moment when you plays fast and loose with dictionaries, he uses at least three different dictionaries in the course of his opinion, um, uh, because he wants to prove that an or in an and or must be an and. Now, in reading these memos, I said to myself that no one trained in the analytic uh, study of poetry could permit himself or herself such twisted, devious interpretations. Professional conscience would intervene somehow to say that's just not a possible interpretation of the statute. What shocked my professional conscience here, in addition to my revulsion at the fact of torture being exercised by my country, was the use of the kind of thing I do for a living, close reading, slow reading, the interpretation of texts and dialogues with others to reach our best understanding of them, to pervert what we know was the purpose of the Geneva Conventions Against Torture. Though it's been suggested in the work of J.M. Katsia, for instance, that use interpretive techniques owe something to deconstruction as practiced in certain university departments of English and comparative literature. I don't think that you was practicing deconstructive reading so much as diabolical reading, not opening up the text to pluralities of meaning, but closing it down closing it down on those detainees promised to torture. So the ethics of reading seminar that I've been teaching is tended to pay close analytic attention to legal texts in conjunction with apposite texts from, from literature and elsewhere. 
It's in no sense made the claim that reading great books will make you a more ethical person. That may or may not be true. I don't think the case is proven, and you can certainly adduce too many examples to the contrary, such as the guarded Auschwitz who would come home from a day of mass murder to listen enraptured to Mozart. And much of our greatest literature offers, I think, a powerful dissent from optimistic views of human contact. I mean something much more modest and technical, that the attention to reading, what we call close or even better, maybe slow reading, itself can constitute an ethical practice. Trying to offer cogent construal of a text should be an ethical act in its faithfulness to what words mean and how they interact, how one infers intentions and meaning from their ordering and so on. You are certainly familiar with the process, too familiar for me to rehearse it in any detail here. I claim the term ethics in the quasi-technical sense then, as characterizing the use of professional expertise to ends that do not distort or pervert or cover up the object under study. The great Northrop Fry claimed in his Anatomy of Criticism that everyone who has seriously studied literature knows that the mental process involved is as coherent and progressive as the study of science. That's quite a claim, and I'm not sure that I subscribe to it entirely, but I know what Fry means. Interpretation is a disciplined activity. As the study of modern vernacular literatures gradually replaced Greek and Latin classics in the curriculum, there was a need for a teaching that would have some of the rigor of classical philology. At the American University, that rigor was largely supplied by new criticism, starting in the 1940s and gaining momentum following World War II. So its origins, of course, lie in I.A. Richards' work in practical criticism at the University of Cambridge. New criticism was particularly well adapted to the United States because it, it presumed and created a kind of democratic classroom where everyone participated in the explication of the text. It didn't claim that all interpretations were equal, but rather that they could all be expressed and then through reasoned discussion led by the teacher, the invalid could be discarded and some sort of consensual truth arrived at. This, of course, is not ethics as taught by the ethicist, not the work of the virtuous philosopher in the terms used by John Keats. You recall Keats's definition of the poet's uh, requisite negative capability. That is, when a man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. And he expands on this notion uh, uh, in a letter to Richard Woodhouse of 1818, uh, which is really at the, the center of my talk today. As to the poetical character itself, I mean that sort of which if I am anything, I am a member, that sort distinguished from the Wordsworthian or egotistical sublime, which is a thing per se and stands alone. It is not itself, it has no self, it is everything and nothing, it has no character. It enjoys light and shade, it lives in gusto, be it foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. It has as much delight in conceiving an Iago as an Imogen. What shocks the virtuous philosopher delights the chameleon poet. It does no harm from its relish of the dark side of things any more than for it, from its taste for the bright one, because they both end in speculation. A poet is the most unpoetical thing a 
anything in existence because he has no identity. He is continually in for and filling some other body. Now, speaking, speaking in the context of a center for ethics, I'm no doubt in the company of many a distinguished virtuous philosopher. But I want here to argue the virtue of the chameleon poet. I believe that the ethics of reading, as I understand it, and indeed much of what goes on in the teaching of literature, and perhaps other humanities subjects as well, engages the chameleon poet more than the virtuous philosopher, or at least in addition to the virtuous philosopher. Now, what's strange about the literature classroom, and differs certainly from, from the non-humanities classroom, is the central place given to the book, to the text. Art history and musicology, it seems to me, are close neighbors in their attention to the art object or the piece of music. These fields in the, in the interpretive humanities, though perhaps literary study more than any of the others, give unusual pride of place to, to this thing, this artifact, which is animated only through our reading and interpretation. We look at it together, we read parts of it aloud, we exchange impressions of what it's about. Like a portrait or a sculpture by, by Brancusch, the text may appear mute and totally inaccessible at first. It comes alive only as readers attempt to say what it means, what they think about it, how it gives order and significance to what they have thought and felt. What is so important about the literature classroom is the way it disciplines personal response by a kind of cultural other, by voices from the past that are not our own. Teachers of literature, I think, are often speaking in other voices, not their own letting the voice of another speak through them, if you will, trying to understand another idiom, both in what it has to say to us and how it differs from our assumptions. As teachers of literature, we ventriloquize other voices, voices mainly from the past or from other cultures. T.S. Eliot famously said that all great art is impersonal, and I would reinterpret that to mean that reading literature in a rigorous way becomes a transpersonal and transsubjective enterprise, one that teaches you about your own condition only if you are willing to allow yourself to be temporarily alienated in otherness. This resembles what Keats meant by negative capability, to be in and in for other speakers, to allow oneself to be provisionally embodied even in ideas that one might reject. Now, the ways in which the chameleon poet may be as useful to ethics as the virtuous philosopher need further argument and illustration, of course. Rather than pursuing further the analysis of legal documents that's been a central interest of mine recently, I'd like to evoke a topic that may be, I hope, of wider interest. That is the, the literary character, that part of fictional narratives that belongs to what Aristotle identified as ethos in talking about tragedy. When I was a university student, and in my own teaching since then, it's always seemed important to teach students that literary persons are only marks on a page. Asking how many children had Lady Macbeth seems, at, at very least, a category error. Falling in love with Mr. Rochester or Mr. Knightley will only lead you to delusion and madness, as in Don Quixote's delusional universe, as with Emma Bovary's infatuation with romance novels that distort reality. It was for me 
and still is now, important that students understand that talking about characters as if they were living people, extending beyond the limits of the page, can only be in the as-if mode. It's crucial to be able to analyze those marks on the page that are the only starting point of our constructive effort. So I want to propose now a partial relaxation of that position. We do create a certain imaginative embodiment for fictional beings, and that clearly is profoundly part of our experience of reading novels. Any ethics of reading should be able to find a place for that embodiment for our wishing to live our lives in the company of Emma Woodhouse or Anna Karenina. It's not at all easy to describe how that as-if embodiment works, and much that has been written about the nature of character in fiction seems to me to fail in the task. Structuralist narratology, which in the wake of Russian formalism has taught us most of what we know about narrative, never really dealt very well with the notion of character, which it tended to assign to the mystified concepts of what it dismissively called the Balzacian novel, 19th century novel of the replete bourgeois world, fully furnished and dressed and accounted for psychologically and materially. In fact, accounted for in the interaction of the material and the psychological. When we reach what I consider the masterpiece of structuralist narratology, Roland Barthes' Ez, published in 1970, characters come to be no more than the point of intersection of several different narrative codes, a kind of crossroads of connotations to which we form ideological convenience assign a proper name, which we then delusionally believe in. In defense of the Barthesian view, I might note that our interaction with other people is in many ways a matter of codes. Everything we've learned from anthropologists and students of everyday life, such as Irving Goffman, suggests that social existence proceeds according to codes. It's how we know one another and communicate with one another. And if we're able to appreciate anew, as I think we as we do, some 19th century novelists as Austin or Balzac, once dismissed by new novelists and French Nouvelle Critique, it's in part because we read them in a renewed admiration of how they understand, define, and deploy the codes of social existence. We do live at the intersection of narrative as well as other codes, and to the extent that we are very much like Emma Woodhouse and Emma Bovary, like Eugène de Rastignac and David Copperfield in having to decipher these codes. I think, in fact, Barthes' view of character as a coded creation may have fed a new interest in the ethics of character and led us back to the classical novel that he both dismissed and, and clearly loved. So our animation of the persons created from written characters on the page can't be dismissed if we want to be faithful to our experience as readers of fiction. There could be many ways of addressing this issue, um, and I want to pursue just one by way of what you might call the optics of character, using Marcel Proust as my principal ex example. Let me step into that question and the example by way of an essay by the art historian T.J. Clark on self-portraiture. Clark is interested in the seeming privilege of the self-portrait, where we as spectators stand in the same place as the painter painting his or her image, which is usually painted in a self-portrait in a mirror. 
Here we have a looker looking at him or herself, looking at the look that he or she has when looking back at the place from which the looking takes place. To offer one example, this is uh, Jacques-Louis David's self-portrait done in prison um, following Thermidor. Um, you know he had been um, uh, part of the Jacobin uh, party, done in prison when he thought he was probably facing, facing execution on the guillotine. I think this, this self-portraiture gives a good sense of, of, of the scene of looking at looking, if you will, and so on, and a kind of infinite regress. Where does our attempted understanding of this looked at self take place? Here is the further example uh, of Chardin's self-portrait, where, where the spectacles, the glasses, seem to play a special role in the, what you might call the optical drama. And just one more example, um, though there would be so many more you could, you could look at, this Joshua Reynolds with its anxious glance uh, toward the mirror um, in which he is reflecting uh, the job that he's about. Since we view the portrait from the place from which the image was seen, we view it from a place of, of its self-consciousness, you might say, from behind the eyes, so that our viewing of the portrait is inevitably an invitation to double the project to make it one of self-understanding. T.J. Clark suggests that, quote, we have been sold a certain metaphysics of spatiality, a picture of the self as having insides and outsides as being somewhere. In viewing the painter's self-viewing, we're attempting to see precisely the locus of that self. Clark here cites philosopher Charles Taylor, who suggests that, quote, the modern conception of a unified personality may not be possible without what he calls a space of disclosure, considered to be inside in the mind. We give ourselves the impression that we've got into another being and in the process have understood something about ourselves. It seems to involve an inevitable process of interiorization. It may all be an illusion, but it seems to be a productive and perhaps necessary way of thinking about imagined selves. Now I see Proust's understanding of the fictional characters offering both a critique of this illusion and a defense of it. His discussion, his theory, if you will, of the fictional character comes most forcefully, and this is of course crucial, in his meditation on reading. In a much discussed scene where the young Marcel reads in the garden the narrator describes how the fictive life of the novel creates a kind of bright diaphanous screen between the reader and the external world so that the world is erased and subsumed into the fictional world, which becomes the more real, an experience I think we've probably all had, which probably largely accounts for our having become professional readers in an intensive sense in the first place. The invention of the fictional character, says Proust, was ingenious, since it enables us to experience life through other eyes. I'm going to return to this scene uh, of reading in just a moment. But first, let me uh, say that it leads hundreds of pages later to one of those operatic Proustian moments. The only true voyage, the only bath in the fountain of youth would be not to visit strange lands, but to possess other eyes, to see the universe through the eyes of another, of a hundred others, to see the hundred universes that each of them sees, that each of them is. And this we can do with an Elstir or the Vinteuil, 
with men like these, we do really fly from star to star. So Proust's fictional painter, that is El Steel, and his fictional composer, Vinteuil, become over the course of the novel precisely the promise of other optics on the world, a simulation of what it would mean to inhabit another being. And while this touches on what we consider the most inesthetic and least avowable function of fiction, that is what we call escape literature, for Proust, it becomes, if you eschew the lazy uh, escapes of Swan and other artistic dilettantes in the novel, not <coughs> escape, but rather entry into a cosmic world where the self is multiplied as a sensitive and cognitive instrument. <clears throat> but we still have everything to learn about the manner in which we come to possess those other eyes, to see as through other consciousnesses. This is a prime concern of Proust who is both aroused and frustrated by the eyes of others, as in his first meeting with uh, Albertine in Balbec. This passage, I think, resonates with, with Clark's description of self-portraiture, though Proust insists on the frustrations of the metaphysics of spatiality. Here is the narrator's reaction to his first glimpse of Albertine. If we thought that the eyes of such a girl were only shining chips of mica, we wouldn't be avid to know her life and to join it to our own. But we sense that what shines in this reflective disk is not only due to its material composition, that there are, unbeknownst to us, the black shadows of the thoughts that this being forms relative to people and things it meets, turf of the racetrack, sound of the path, we're pedaling through fields and wood, this little peri more seductive for me than that of the Persian paradise would have led me the shadows too of the house where she will return home, the projects that she is forming that others have formed for her, and especially that is she with her desires, her sympathies, her repulsions, her obscure and unceasing will. I knew that I would not possess this young cyclist unless I possessed what was in her eyes, right? It's our, it's our knowledge that a consciousness is lodged behind those chips of mica, that someone is looking out at us from them, through them, that's the source of our longing and also of our torture. We want to be able to take up our dwelling behind those eyes to know intimately everything that they know in the course of a day and a night. So here begins the painful and impossible desire to make another's uh, life one's one's own, the scenario that will play out over thousands of pages in Proust's novel and produce finally the physical imprisonment of Albertine until she escapes in a flight leading to her death. But I think the passage is not only about that impossible wish to possess another person physically, it also lays the ground, groundwork for that later moment I already quoted where the art of the painter, the composer, and the novelist provide the only true way to enter behind the eyes of another. So Proust proposes an understanding of the novel as the place of imagined lives that enable us to displace ourselves from our own lives, to unsettle that place a few inches behind the eyes from which we view other lives, and to take up a fictional vantage point instead. So far, that sounds somewhat like a traditional apologia for the novel, one that easily flips into the critique of the novel since it displaces us from our normal place of moral residence, it can make us lose our moral compass 
espouse unbridled erotic experience, for instance, and long for forbidden emotions. It's the source of the long suspicion of the novel on the part of Churchman and Marlis, given perhaps its most sophisticated discussion by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, he will, who will both castigate the fictional simulation and stimulation of the emotions and make the 18th century's most celebrated use of them in his one novel, which begins with the epigraph, theater is necessary in large cities and novels for corrupt populations. I've looked at the manners of my time and published these letters, that is the letters that make up the novel, if only I had lived in a time when I should have thrown them in the fire. In other words, once emotions have become the stuff of feigning, of theater, of cultivation, of civilization, then one needs to use the genre in which espousing the feigned emotions of another can lead you through corruption to something else. The use of novelistic life becomes nearly theological. It is the vehicle that makes the fall redeemable. It's the place of the Felix culpa. Now, Proust is, of course, well aware of the critique of the novel as immoral, and he'll give it a new turn of the screw in demonstrating how sexual inversion, as he calls it, inverts and changes all our optics on social life. His large claim about the value of fictions, as I understand it, lies in the morality that, that may be said to inhere in the extension of a single life and consciousness into multiple others. The more these others may invert us, the better. The reader's relation to fictional character is less a matter of identification, as we were once lazily taught to think, than what Proust calls metempsychosis, reincarnation in another's body. And it's a willed metempsychosis, something that we choose whenever we open a novel uh, in the act of what Henry James called immersion. But again, what this might mean, I think, needs further scrutiny if we're to understand the cognitive and ethical value of fictional beings. So let me return to the first volume, to Swan's Way, where Marcel has been sent into the garden gazebo to read since his grandmother has declared that the weather is much too fine for him to remain indoors and quote a bit from a very long paragraph that it would be tempting to give in full. It is true, the narrator tells us, that the characters in the book are not what the, his maid, Francoise, would call real. But all the feelings we are made to experience by the joy or the misfortune of a real person are produced in us only through the intermediary of an image of that joy or that misfortune. The ingeniousness of the first novelist consisted in understanding that in the apparatus of our emotions, the image being the only essential element, the simplification that would consist in purely and simply abolishing real people would be decisive improvement. A real human being, however profoundly we sympathize with him, is in large part perceived by our senses. That is to say, remains opaque, presents a dead weight which our sensibility cannot lift. The novelist's happy discovery was to have the idea of replacing these parts of real persons impenetrable to, the, impenetrable to the soul by an equal quantity of immaterial parts, that is to say, parts which our soul can assimilate. What does it matter thenceforth if the actions and the emotions of this new order of creatures seem to us true since we have made them ours, since it is within us that they occur, that they hold within their control as we feverishly turn the pages of the book the rapidity of our breathing and the intensity of our gaze. Once inhabited by this 
in this manner by the fictional will be troubled as by certain dreams, yet in a fashion more lucid than a dream, and we will know in the space of a couple of hours what we can learn in life only over many years or not at all, since perception of the profound changes of life are hidden from us by the slowness of their process. The heart changes in life, that is our worst sorrow, but we know this change only through our reading. So Proust here is giving, it seems to me, an apologia for the fictional character as cognitive instrument. And optics, and of course there's a great deal about optics throughout the novel, that lets us read the meanings of temporal change in ways that are close to us in life. It's not only, as Walter Benjamin claims in his great essay, The Storyteller, that we seek in fiction the knowledge of the meaning of death that is foreclosed to us in our own lives. It is that, yes, but Proust goes farther to claim that the non-real person is an essential instrument in this cognitive process. I think there's a kinship here with uh, an argument made by the critic Catherine Gallagher that the fictionality of the novelistic person is a necessary correlate of that person's capacity to represent the real for us. By suppressing real people, that putative first novelist that Proust talks about creates an extension to our hard wiring, enabling us to see the world around us as transformed through a vision by way of other eyes. Once these other eyes on the world have taken over, they're in control. Our ordinary selves have become merely virtual. To insist in the, in the manner of both structuralist narratology and new criticism, that character in the novel is an illusion produced from textual markings is completely true, but I think is limited. As we've moved through various formalisms toward a rediscovery of the referential and ethical dimensions of literature, we've also revived its cognitive claims. In a sense, we've restored to a place of honor what Coleridge and many another romantic called the imagination and what they told us about the imagination though we've come no closer to understanding how the imagination works. In an apparent paradox, our understanding of ourselves as coded structures in the manner of Walter Foucault has allowed us to relax somewhat about the loss of self involved in the reading of fiction. If in the Rousseauian argument, we lose our moral compass when we assimilate fictional lives to our own and start to view the world through other eyes, so much the better we may decide. We may want to go so far as to claim advanced by the historian Lynn Hunt in her book, Inventing Human Rights, that our imaginative investment in other selves lies at the origin of our capacity to understand others as having irreducible rights that cannot be violated, precisely our understanding of what constitutes the human. And this understanding is now leading many to think about the claims of non-human species in relation to us as well. Long before Proust, Adam Smith, in his theory of moral sentiments, argued the basis of sympathetic or, or empathetic identification by way of the imagination, his famous passage on torture, which should have been required reading in the CIA, though our brother is on the rack, as long as we ourselves are at our ease, our senses never will inform us of what he suffers. By the imagination, we place ourselves in his situation. We conceive ourselves enduring all the same. We enter, as it were, into his body and become in some measure the same person with him. 
and thence form some idea of his sensations and even feel something which, though weaker in degree, is not altogether unlike them. His agonies, when they are thus brought home to ourselves, when we have thus adopted and made them our own, begin at last to affect us, and we then tremble and shudder at the thought of what he feels. Like Proust, Smith is alert to the movement between self and other that the imagination alone permits. He doesn't take Proust's further step that the suppression of our brother in favor of a fictional person makes entry into the other's body easier and more complete, a substitution rather than a simulation, and thus paradoxically, perhaps a fuller realization of another kind of being in the world. Proust, I think, then offers a potent argument in favor of fictions, a strong justification of our modern choice of the novel as the genre that represents everything we think we need to know from past history to future dystopia while passing through endless scenes of contemporary life. But we need also to recall what Proust tells us about the price paid for novelistic representation during the final pages of Time Regained, Le Grand Retrouvé, pages which have a triumphant joy about them, which is most often what critics have registered uh, because he has at last discovered his vocation. But there's also a very dark undercurrent that I think we should not neglect. The discovery of his fiction-making vocation means for Marcel the renunciation of those he has loved, destined to become mere figures in the fiction. Persons are annihilated by the, the novelist. A book is a vast cemetery where on most of the gravestones one can no longer read the names that have been effaced. The fictionalist's task appears to be resolutely egotistical, the extinction of the world in favor of his fictional life. And the realized fiction itself is no more than an optical instrument. As he puts it in reality, each reader is, when he reads, the very reader of himself. The work of the writer is only a kind of optical instrument that he offers the reader in order to allow him to discern what without this book he might not have seen in himself. So cognition seems to be incorporate with extinction and destruction. People must die in order for the novel to live. And Marcel here quotes a famous line from Victor Hugo's elegy to his daughter. Um, Il faut que l'herbe pousse et que les enfants meurent. The grass must grow and, and children must die. To conclude that it is the cruel law of art that beings die in order that the fiction live, like grass on which future generations will then come to have their déjeuner sur l'herbe. I don't know what happened in the English translation there. I, I only give you the French. So the death of the novelist, too, is part of the life of fiction. And he finally compares himself to Scheherazade telling stories under the threat of extinction. Death appears in multiple guises in these pages, always as a necessary condition, a sanction, to use Benjamin's uh, term, of what the novelist will tell. The cognitive value of the fictional person, that person as cognitive instrument, both affirms our traditional sense of real life attached to literary characters and at the same time annihilates the existence of characters. Because ultimately, character is no one as person, but rather the workings of mind through the optics of other invented people. 
Proust's ultimate notion of character, I think, points towards that of his avid reader, Samuel Beckett, character as the unnameable, l'innommable. Character returns to mind, ultimately, the readers, a consciousness somewhere between Scheherazades and the sultans in the suspensive space of reading in which one is everyone and no one. For myself, I can't quite accept the notion that literature produces an incarnation, a traditional idea more recently uh, reworked by Jacques Ancière. Our embodiment by way of the characters whose lives we read, uh, whose lives we read about, seems to me itself fictional, provisional, a kind of trying on of costumes, manners, sensations, eyeglasses, including telescopes and microscopes that is protean in its mobility. That we can talk about Dorothea Brooke or the Baron de Charlus beyond the boundaries of the pages we have read is testimony not so much to our wish that we could invite them to dinner as to our need to reimagine our own existences through other eyes. As Freud said much too simplistically, but with much truth, fiction is all about his majesty, the ego. Freud also says in his essay, The Ego and the Id, that, quote, the character of the ego is a precipitate of abandoned object cathexes and that it contains the history of those object choices. Um, a, a kind of dense sentence which I translate to mean that the ego is built up from those objects, meaning largely persons, which have been invested with desire over time and which even when abandoned contribute to the structuring of the ego. I think we can include in those abandoned object cathexes, that is, once the place to which libido was attached, fictional persons as well as real ones. The ego learns its own shape by trying on others. That's why we need the novel. Virginia Woolf, to extend this forward a bit, famously claimed that, quote, in or around December 1910, human character changed. That line in the essay in which it appears, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, which was earlier entitled Character and Fiction, have long proved watchwords for students of modernism. Yet Wolf by no means seeks to abolish character. What she does in the manner of Proust, for instance, with Henry James clearly a precursor, is to dissolve its hard outlines, its nature as a fully upholstered Victorian being in favor of something that seeks to change our optics. In that essay, Mr. Bennett, Mr. Bennett and Mrs. Brown, <clears throat> she imagines the reactions of the popular Edwardian novelist Arnold Bennett to the figure caller Mrs. Brown, who sits opposite the novelist in the railway carriage. Bennett would go about knowing her and creating her in his fiction through externals, where she is from, what kind of house she lives in, how it's furnished, what's her income, what was her father's profession, what did her mother die of, and so on. Describe cancer, describe calico, describe, but I cried, stop, stop, and I regret to say that I threw that ugly, that clumsy, that incongruous tool out of the window. For I knew that if I began describing the cancer and the calico, my Mrs. Brown, that vision to which I clung, though I know no way of imparting it to you, would have been dulled and tarnished forever. We know, of course, the kind of description she's talking about from Dickens and Balzac and George Eliot, indeed, most 19th century novelists. As I understand Wolf here, she's claiming that the notion 
that one can get at character by way of describing and situating character, appearance, milieu, socioeconomic status, and so on, gets it backwards. It's fine to endow Mrs. Brown with whatever traits of life you want, but it's most important to understand that she is an optics on the world. She's our instrument for seeing. She makes our minds and imaginations work trying to understand her view of the world, and that can never be got at by externalities. I want to give the last word not to Wolf or Proust, but to another great experimenter with a fictive person, that is Henry James, who presents a perverse and sinister version of what I believe concerns Proust in the theory of fictional persons. I'm thinking here of a moment in James's dark novella, The Beast in the Jungle, about a man, John Marcher, who spends his whole life waiting for something to happen to him, like the spring of a wild beast, only to, to discover too late that it is nothing that has happened to him, that his experience has been one of nothingness, as a kind of self-blinding that has prevented him from seeing and responding to the love of his companion, Mae Bartram. Nothingness and unknowing here are like dark matter, the stuff of unseeing which equates morally to an egotistical indifference to other persons. May Bartram is the one who will first discover that nothingness and then can only hope that Marcher will never discover it, though he will at the very end. She manages to peer through the mask of, of Marcher's persona. His social behavior is described as a long act of dissimulation. And the following lines are more radical still. What it had come to was that he wore a mask painted with the social super, out of the eye holes of which there looked eyes of an expression not in the least matching the other features. This the stupid world, even after years, had never more than half discovered. It was only Mae Bartram who had, and she, who had, and she achieved by an art indescribable, the feat of it once, or perhaps it was only alternately, meeting the eyes from in front and mingling her own vision as from over his shoulder with their peep through the apertures. May Bartram in this manner is, is produced as the perfect reader of fiction who by this art indescribable both espouses Marcher's optics on the world from behind his mask and confront, confronts his eyes from outside him, in front of him. She discovers the truth and then can only plead that the truth is so horrible that it should never come out. So James presents a kind of moralized, you might say, a very American view of the fictional mass. Yet the morality play in The Beast in the Jungle is itself complex. If it's about an ethical failure of empathy, a failure of Marcher's, on Marcher's part to put himself in the place of Mae Bartram, it's more radically about the fearful possibility that character itself may be nothingness, merely an assumed fiction, part of a bogus metaphysics, to use Clark's term. James, I think, rejoins Proust in seeing what you might describe as the conspiracy of fiction and nothingness. They both suggest to us that the real life of fictional character is his character is A, an illusion, and B, an inevitable and necessary illusion in that we are able to espouse their materiality because of their very fictionality in a way that we could not if they were in fact real people and see an illusion that needs to be exposed for what it is since fictional persons are really optics that we need to understand ourselves. Well, where does this leave us? 
I understand that any critical or theoretical attempt to tell us how to understand character in fiction must fail precisely because character is a concept that extends far beyond the boundaries of fiction into all our ways of judging life and its persons. That is as it should be. We want and need fiction. We want and need the novel, for instance, because it changes our ways of thinking about the world, including those who people the world. It's very much part of the task of the chameleon poet to make us take up residence in other bodies and minds, be they foul or fair, high or low, rich or poor, mean or elevated. The imagination of the poet and the novelist has as much delight in conceiving in an Iago as in Imogen. Proust, like all great novelists, in fact, may make us understand more through the Iagoish experience of jealousy presented as a kind of warped instrument of epistemology in the novel than in any of the more pleasurable moments that he offers. What I want to stress in closing, and I am about done, is our ability and our need to seek other optics to compete with our own, to learn to see and to read the way others behave through espousing fictionally their view of the world. We need to talk about Gwendolyn Harleth and Catherine Earnshaw as if they were actors in our reality because we need to extend our limited experience through theirs. We do with greater clarity, we do this with greater clarity when we see that our wanting them to be as if real responds to our need to use them optically. We need them in order to look more searchingly in our own lives. My ethics of reading then would include that rare feat attributed to Mae Bartram in The Beast in the Jungle, looking at once through the eye holes of the mask and meeting the gaze through those eye holes from in front, at once sharing delusion, delusion, if you will, and denouncing it. Though we seem to have moved far from the torture memos and my first motivation for invoking an ethics of reading, in fact, I think we have traveled very little distance at all. The optics so thoroughly explored by Proust are a manner of critical reading, a demand that we exercise that optical instrument that he sees in the book to understand our place and our commitments in the world.